Welcome to Brave Dynamics. This is your host, Jeremy Yao. Leadership is harder than looks. As a proven founder and Harvard MBA, I interview courageous entrepreneurs, executives, and investors every week. I also share my frontline experiences, coaching insights, and own professional development journey. If you're stepping up as a new leader, founding a startup, or venturing into the great unknown, this is the podcast for you. Brian Pham is the founder of the Asian Hustle Network, crushing it in real estate, hate is a virus, and a venture partner at Outlier Fund. He is passionate about bringing together communities of like-minded individuals through growing AHN to over 65,000 members in a little over 10 months and managing an active CIIRE group of over 2,000 investors. Managing a team of 25 people, Brian seeks to uplift Asian entrepreneurs around the world with the goal of having better representation in mainstream media and upper corporate and investment ladders. Brian and his co-founders, Maggie Choi, are also the hosts of the Asian Hustle Network podcast and community leaders bringing on board Asian American and Pacific Islander entrepreneurs to inspire and share their knowledge to provide the foundation for future generations to succeed. Outside of AHN, Brian is the Director of Strategic Partnerships at Startup Grind, Berkeley, that brings together an ecosystem of VCs, angel investors, and aspiring entrepreneurs. He's also an active angel investor and real estate investor and has been featured on Bloomberg, Business Insider, Next Shark CGTV, LA Times, and Voyage LA. Hey, Brian. Welcome aboard the show. Yeah, super excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Yeah, it's just amazing to see you grow the Asian Hustle Network from zero to over 67,000 members in such a short period of time, honestly, and it's been an incredibly helpful community to me. Yeah, super excited to be here and talk more about it. For those who want to meet the man behind the myth and legend, (laughs) how would you introduce yourself and your journey? So I would say I would come from a pretty humble background. Uh, My parents escaped the Vietnam War. Uh, When they came over here, my mom always told me that they managed to survive in America with only 25 US dollars. And because of that resourcefulness, it really resonates to me that if you have a strong will and strong hustle, you can do anything you want in life. And I always think back to that story too, I've been going through my hustle journey. Because there are times where when I started out in entrepreneurship, I wanted to quit. I thought it was super hard. But to take a step back and talk about my journey, I somewhat followed a traditional path to begin with. I mean, I studied engineering back in college. I got my master's in computer science. When I graduated, I worked as a software engineer for a while. As I was going through my journey, I didn't feel fulfilled. I feel like I was just waking up, going to my job, doing a really good job, and going home and sleep. And what else is there to life? And I started doing things to kind of pique my own interests. And my own interest is always to learn about how money works. I'm always curious to see, like, how can I make more money, but not the purpose of it is not to make more money, but out of curiosity, what is my potential? And I got into the stock market at the very beginning when I was like 19, 20, lost a lot of money. And then I got into Amazon, selling Amazon stuff around like 2010, 2011. I didn't do well neither. And, you know, these experiences hurt, but it also taught me a strong lesson that I can't just jump into anything shiny. I had to take a step back and sort of build my foundation first and really enjoy that journey. You know, read everything I could, ask a lot of questions. Before, when I first jumped into my first few businesses, I refused to ask any questions because I thought that was a sign of weakness. 
You know, what my parents taught me growing up is that you don't need to ask for help. Study hard. You don't need to do that. Study hard. So when I got to business, that was my mentality. I don't need to ask for help. I can read it. I can find stuff online. That's not the case at all. And then I learned from these experiences. And then after five, six years of working my job, I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area from LA. And I first moved here, I was like, wow, it's so expensive here. How does anyone afford to buy a house? And at the same time, the roommate that I moved into with the Bay Area, he started doing real estate investing. He said, hey, Brian, do you want to learn with me? I'm like, yeah, sure. And I learned from my past mistakes, like, take it slow. Like, take your time. You don't feel ready. You don't have to jump in. So I spent probably the first two years reading all the books I can, reading all the forums, listening to hundreds of hours of podcasts, going out to meetup.com and meeting people, real estate investors, taking them out of coffee, asking them a lot of questions. And then in a very short amount of time, me and my partner, like, we started flipping a lot of houses in the Bay. And this is around 2015, 2016, 2017. We started flipping houses. And we did pretty well during that time. The market was super hot. Even if you bought like a wrong house at a wrong price, you still made money from it. And that was amazing to us. But we definitely learned our lesson too. Because in late 2018, early 2019, we lost a lot of money. And we ended up in Bloomberg Magazine. It wasn't a good thing. But thanks to that experience, like, I was able to get into apartment investing. Well, I currently own an apartment complex, but I used to own two. I just sold one recently, like a month ago. And then that experience taught me how to syndicate money and then get into hotel investing, which kind of freed up a lot of my time. And by just getting, I learned the power of passive income, getting cash flow, and realizing that I can make money without having a corporate job. So I decided to just travel a bit and figure out who I am. And the most ironic thing to me is that you think money will bring you happiness, but it doesn't. It actually forces you to ask more questions about yourself. What does retirement mean to you? What does life mean to you? And these are the questions you don't typically don't ask yourself while you're working your nine to five because you're just going to your daily routine. But once your routine is broken, it's like, okay, what is there? Is, what other purpose there is to life? What else can I do? And you stop thinking about how you can benefit. Your mindset starts changing. And you start thinking about how you can benefit the world. In a really weird way, like that actually caused me to get like a minor depression where I was like, oh my God, I'm like 28, 29 at the time. I don't know what to do with my life. <laughs> you know? You just have so much freedom, so many decisions. I mean, a lot of freedom up to the point you just don't know what to do. So around that time, I was talking to my girlfriend and I was telling her, like, I want to do something more for the community. I want to do something that would benefit other people's lives. And she's like, do it. But I'm like, do what? What am I doing? <laughs> you, know? you just don't know. So I started journaling every day. Like, I started writing down my thoughts. How can I benefit the world? And the biggest thing that always came to me was, wow, like, we have a lot of reputation problems with Asian community, not just in America, but around the world. We are seen as a, like the mono minority. We have to follow the rules, and that we work hard, we keep our head down. And that really bothered me a lot. And I started paying attention more too, as I networked my way into upper tier real estate projects, like people who build like skyscrapers in San Francisco. I was bumping shoulders with them and talking to them. And I realized that there's a difference between the people that I grew up with and them, is that they were more willing to help each other and very abundant doesn't matter what kind of resources that you need. They're very open to help you as long as you build that trust with them. And that was something that I wanted to bring back to the Asian community. Because I feel like for us, we're so fragmented. There's no real community out there that's just for the Asian community. There's Korean, there's Japanese, Chinese, Vietnamese, whatever. They're very segregated. And I wanted us to be under one umbrella because that's the only way that we can make a difference. If we just continue to stay fragmented, we're just splashing around the pond, no big waves. But if we all splash together, we can make bigger waves and bigger changes. 
And that's sort of like my pre-early stages of the Asian Hustle Network. It's like, how can I bring the abundance mindset and the resources to very talented people in the Asian community who I know for a fact will make a difference and will make a change. That's amazing and an incredible journey. Now, for those who don't know much about Asian Hustle Network, could you explain in your own words what the mission is and also how it grew from zero to where it is today? Of course. Asian Hustle Network is built around uplifting each other and supporting the Asian community. And our main purpose in this organization is to have more Asian representation in the media, higher investment in corporate ladders, and just to make a difference. So we started as a Facebook group. And at the same time, I was really inspired by subtle Asian traits about a year ago. And I was like, man, this group grew so quickly. But there's one key difference. There was something lacking for the Asian professional community. I don't want us to just be known for memes or be like the butt of all jokes. I don't want that. I want us to show how sophisticated we really are. And I want it to be, quote unquote, the LinkedIn version of subtle Asian traits. That was my vision behind it. We started really small and we started thinking really big. At the time, we only had less than 100 members in the community, but we had more than 25 people on the team. And people asked me, why do you staff your team that big? And I told them, we're going to grow really big, really fast. So we have to be ready for this. You know, so I always have this impression that we're going to do something big right off the bat. And just bringing on the right talent, bringing on the right people, the right projects, and really putting your ears to the ground, understanding what the community really needs, allows us to build out the right feature, the right functionality, the right events for us to network together and make things happen. And I'm happy to hear like there's a lot of intangible conversations, different organizations that came out of Asian Hustle Network, a lot of people fighting for representation, a lot of people more speaking up now. And best of all, as a community of support, and that's what we're all about. We're supporting each other. How big is the Asian Hustle Network now today? How would you define those you know, metrics in terms of size and impact? We hit 60,000 members in less than 11 months. Pretty quickly, we are about 96% active engagement, meaning that almost the entire group logs in at least once or twice a couple of days just to read the post, which is awesome. And prior to COVID, we had events around the world. We had events in Melbourne, London. We we're planning some in Singapore as well. And it doesn't matter where we were around the world. We had more than 300 to 500 people come out to each event because they're trying to bring as much value as we can to the Asian community. And we were trying to show each other that there's so much resources out there in abundance that we can all succeed. And then growing up too, like I was taught that if my friends succeed, I can't win. And if I win, my friends can succeed. And that sort of resonated with me for a long time. But the more I got into business, the more I realized that in actuality, there's so much resources out there that if you continue helping each other, that you can break through those barriers and go to higher and higher ground. You know, when you look at the true one, 1%, the tycoons is like majority of them are not Asian. And that's really disappointing to me to, to see and hear because I think that we're just as talented as anyone else. That's so true. And you know, I'm kind of curious because, you know, we hear the word bamboo seeding, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes people are like, it doesn't exist. And other people are like, it exists and I see it. How do you think it, we see that today? Because it's not as obvious now as you can't join a profession, you know, enter the country. But how do you see that take place and what's the reality of it today? I think the reality is very much prevalent. It's definitely there. Being in Silicon Valley, you look at the upper management, you know, they're all male and they're all white. And when you look at the percentage of Asian workers in tech, we make a pretty good percentage of the workforce, but yet barely any one of us becomes a manager or a senior leader or a CEO. 
unless we start our own company. This is the truth. Like it's so hard for us to get promoted us that round because we aren't seen as strong and as decisive. You know, we're seen as passive, good model citizens. Really, like we keep our head down. We work hard. We don't ask for anymore. We don't fight back. That's not true. It may be true for our parents' generation, but it's not true for our generation. Like we're just as well spoken as anyone else around the world right now. Given where we are in life, like we're just as well spoken. So why not us? You know, we should asking ourselves those questions more. Why not us? It's our time. And how did you first get started on this journey? Right, that realization of this mission. Because it sounds like part of it was like your own thinking through of how to become entrepreneurial on your own, in spite of your cultural upbringing that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And at the same part of time, also like this broader view of the whole community having the same issue. What were those first few insights and moments where you? Saw that for yourself. I always had this weird thing growing up where I always think of the world in a very holistic manner, and I always have this thought in the back of my mind: it's like, if that person's successful, what makes that person so successful? So I started looking at my friends who went to really good schools like Harvard, like yourself, and just analyzing them, and then looking at it from a point of view where it's like, does it matter if I'm white? Is it matter if I'm black? Is it matter if I'm Asian? And I started thinking about all those things and. I think the thing, the biggest catalyst for me was back when I was an undergrad, my roommate was Jewish, and looking at a glimpse of how the Jewish community worked, they're really supportive of each other, and they help each other out so much with so much connections and resource and abundance. And ironic thing is, like my old roommate and I were having conversation. He was like, "Does the Asian community do the same thing?" I'm like, "Surprising, no." <laughs> and that's my first realization that we're not working together, and being in real estate as well, like. All the ethnic groups stick together, and it's really difficult for us to like work among each other as a team. And I just wanted to break down that barrier. That's my first realization that we don't really have a community out there that is truly Asian, and that we support each other because we are Asian. And that resonated with me a lot in terms of creating Asian Hustle Network. As you build this out and in your experiences, you know how have you seen leadership in action from your perspective? So when you're building out an organization or any company. You as a leader, your personality and perspective is reflected throughout the entire organization, and it's crazy how that happens too. It's just your company just mimics who you are, and if you're an abundance type of guy or a risk taker, that was shown all the decisions that we've made throughout the corporation. And as an early leader of your company, you are the company. Your brand doesn't really mean much at that point. People are looking at you. Are you credible? Do you have a lot of integrity? Can you lead? Do you get angry fast? What's your temperament like? That's leadership in action right there. And the thing is, like, if you can lead your organization based off your values and morals and a very high standard, you're going to attract other leaders that want to come to you. The law of attraction is true, and you find a lot of like-minded people who believe in your vision, who are are very talented in their own right, and you kind of bring those people on board. You know, you find different projects that pique both your interests. You always have a win-win mentality, where you set your vision like as a north star. And you have all the talented people work under the North Star to get to that point. So the thing about working with other strong leaders is that if you bring them onto the team, you're not supposed to tell them what to do. You bring on really smart people for one reason: for them to tell you what to do. And you can't let your ego get in the way. You have to be able to be a leader that empowers other people and that supports them. And that's the whole point of bringing other leaders into your organization. How have you seen the difference of leadership? Between you know community leadership, which is what you do at Asian Hustle Network, versus 
more typical small business leadership. What would you say that the differences maybe in leadership style or approaches? I would say it's very similar because when you're running a community or a company, you're still dealing with your customer, your audience and whatnot. And the thing with that is your company or community cannot grow past you. It'll stop at one point because you're not mature enough because you're not ready enough. But that doesn't mean that you can't bring in the right talent to help you get through that because you have yourself will continue to have to learn because if you are pushing new heights and you're not ready for it mentally or whatnot or knowledge-wise, you can't push to that height. You can't get there. So you have to continue to keep growing and growing and growing. And that's the same for both community and companies, you know, because community can fail really quickly but companies can also fail really quickly. If you stop paying attention to what you need to do, you're going to fail. If you have any doubts inside your heart, you're going to fail. You lose your integrity, you're going to fail. So very, very similar. One interesting thing that I've observed within the network has been how much people have been helping each other, right? So obviously there's your leadership and your executive team's leadership, but also a lot of bottom-up leadership in the community. And I think that's something that struck me as very different from other communities I've been part of, right? Which tends to be more like top-down. So classic alumni club, right? It's like the, the board does all the work, right? And then everyone else is kind of like, I mean, obviously contributing and networking. But I think there's something really different or special. What do you think explains that, like, I don't know, magic or secret sauce is happening? I think it's the culture that we built so far that's really important. I think that as Asians, we just naturally have a strong sense of community. And sometimes in the wrong environment, it's really hard for us to bring off that community because we don't feel safe. Asian culture is like, we'll take care of you to death if we can trust you because you're our family. It doesn't matter if we have the same parents or not. If we can trust you, we'll take care of you to death. And that's within all of us. And we're taught to take care of each other. And looking at the COVID situation too, the numbers in Asia have been decreasing so quickly because we're not about individualism. We're masks because we want to protect other people. And if you bring that into Asian Hustle Network, building a safe community for you to be open, be collaborative, you're going to bring out the best of the Asian culture, which is to support each other. And naturally, we like to support each other. And when we see each other breakthroughs new heights, like Asian athletes, Asian businessmen, doesn't matter if they're Chinese, Japanese, whatever, we tend to gravitate towards them as support because they look like us, they sound like us, they go through the same experiences as us. And that's the one thing we try to keep cultivating Asian Hustle Network by allowing people to share their stories is that it doesn't matter if you grew up in Singapore, if I grew up in America, we have very similar upbringing. We have the same values. We want the same things in life. And if we can break that common ground, we build a safe environment for people to be continually helping each other. And I wouldn't say it was a bottom-up approach. I would say it's an empowerment approach where you empower other people to be themselves. And we just have to continue fostering that culture in the Asian Hustle Network. That's so true, right? Which is it's not this bottom-up, but it's also peer-to-peer. And I also think there's a lot of truth in the how it's a global network, but honestly, it's a cultural network, right? And that's what allows it to be international because of that shared heritage and similar outlook. I'm kind of curious, have there been any tough spots that have been encountered in your journey? Oh, man. There are some days where I wake up in the morning and I'm like, is this journey worth it? Because <laughs> when you're dealing with the Asian community, we're unique in some ways because when you think about it, it's only one generation ago that our grandparents were fighting each other in a war. Seriously, it's only one generation ago. And we're one generation later. So those, I wouldn't say limitation, but those thoughts are transferred down to our generation in many ways. And the biggest challenge is like, how do you unite people together? You know, how do you have a common goal? 
because sometimes you find that people are easily ready to throw away your culture because of something they believe, like some really political stuff in the past too. And that's probably the biggest challenge that we face on a daily basis. But we have to keep reminding the people that we're stronger together. We have a lot of situations where it really tests our integrity and who we are. So we're proud to say like we were transparent for and for good and bad. Because we had situations in the past where we had community members met up with each other and there was a sexual harassment case that happened. And this girl totally took it back to her community. It was like, oh, I blame Asian Hustle Network for this and this and this. You know, she reached out to us. We were very empathetic of her and tried to comfort her and do the right thing. So that poses our first test, really. Are we truly a transparent company? Are we truly a transparent organization? Although at the time I felt like the world was ending, I felt like our community was going to die. But we decided to post apology and make our stance clear that we're here to support women and want them to speak up to us about any sexual harassment that happens because we're not about sweeping that under the rug. We're here for transparency. We're here for protection. We're here for empowerment. And we have to stand by our, our values and morals, really. Yeah, I think that's such a true story. And, you know, I'm so sorry to hear that. And at the same time, I also understand where you're coming from because, you know, as building communities, the mission and the values and the team, and yet there's always bad apples, right? And bad faith actors who are taking advantage of the community. And I think the community's ability to get through that together is really a function of the leadership exhibited by everybody in the community about saying, is, do we stand up to it or not, right? You know, is this acceptable or not, right? I found that most time it actually does more harm when you're quiet and not transparent. It just speaks loudly to our preconditioned thoughts. It's like, oh, you have anything bad, especially in the Asian family, you have anything bad, you hide it. I don't think that's a good thing. I don't think it's healthy. You know, the best relationships are ones that you talk about your problems, good or bad, and be mature enough to embrace it and embrace change and embrace solutions. And that's what I was trying to enforce throughout the Asian Hustle Network. I mean, it's you know, definitely an interesting time of the world, right? Because I think that every community is making a set of choices, right? Which is what our vision and values, so that's the positive side, and what's not acceptable, right? And obviously, we, in, you know, when we write it down, and I think when we think about our principles, you know, it's kind of like black and white, right? And as you talked about it, the real world intrudes a little bit, right? Because like you said, for example, it's just like, a generation ago, so many Asian countries were at war with each other. Like you said, you know, my parents grew up that. And then how can that topic, which is, you know, not very far away, but still historically relevant, you know, how does that play out, right? I don't know what the right answer is. I mean, I guess maybe looking at the cut and dry answer, like, I guess personally, how do you think about making the right call? You know, how do you personally try to approach each individual, not necessarily moderation, but also like leadership choice that you have to make there? Yeah, I mean, life is all about decisions that you make, right? At the end of the day, you have to look back to who you are as a person, what you believe is right, your morals. And you make decisions not, well, from a logical standpoint too, but sometimes your decision has to be from the heart. And sometimes that decision might be unpopular among people, but deep down inside, you know, it's the right decision. And you just have to be true to yourself when you're making these type of decisions to make the world better, essentially. It wasn't that difficult for me per se, because I feel like I'm the type of person that would totally say something if I see something wrong. <laughs> you know? It's just, just how I've always been. And I'm also the type of person where before Asian Hustle Network, I try to just help people without them knowing it, where it's like I make donations or I pay for groceries for the person behind me or something like that. 
help whenever I can. And then having that sort of translate over to Asian Hustle Network as well. You know, I think that's something that is actually quite interesting, right? Which is, you know, I kind of grew up the same dynamic where you help people, but you try to do it anonymously. <laughs> it feels like a, yeah. like an Asian dynamic there for some reason. I'm just kind of curious. How do you feel about that? Like, don't take credit for helping people. I think that's maybe the phrase. Like, yeah, it's more virtuous maybe in some way because, you know, you're not identified or yeah, person doesn't know. What do you think about that? Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely makes sense. I mean, that's a really Asian way. It's like, be humble, be modest, help others. You don't, you don't have to claim credit. But unfortunately, we live in a new generation now where ironically, the more you claim credit, the more you can help. That's just the weird thing about where we live now. And those are the preconditioned thoughts. They're not wrong that our parents teach us, but also you have to understand what our social playing field is currently. When you look at other successful people making a difference, you know, looking at Bill Gates and his philanthropy stuff or looking at a bunch of other billionaires, you know, the reason why they can make waves is not because they're anonymous, because they are forefront with everything. And that's how our generation should be. We should be more front-facing. And that kind of rings back to a topic that people asked me before. They're like, Brian, you created such an awesome organization. Why are you so front-facing? Why can't you just be in the back? You get less headaches that way. You know, I get told that a lot. I feel like your personal credibility and your personal brand, if no one knows who you are, in the future, you can't make a bigger wave. You can't make a bigger difference. And in some ways, that's a very shallow way of thinking. But also from a human perspective, too, it's like there's no name recognition and it's harder to do other things, you know, in order to make a difference. And that's unfortunately <laughs> the world that we live in. One more thing to add, too, I know as I'm talking to very successful Asian entrepreneurs, multi-billionaires, I asked them what was the biggest regret that they would have done differently had they became more open when they were younger. And the biggest regret they always told me is like, we wish that we weren't hiding behind our company brand. And that we were out more outspoken and more visible to everyone. Because when you look at it, we're lacking a lot of strong Asian role models out there, especially as corporate leaders. Like you don't see that many Asian leaders. But nationality, there's a lot of us. When you dig deep enough, you find that there's a lot of Asian CEOs out there who generally just don't speak up. And that's one thing that I talked to them about. I was like, I wish we were more front facing because now we can make a bigger difference and do more things because people know who we are from our name recognition. That's so true. No one's asking people to claim credit for stuff they haven't done or to be arrogant about giving them. Nobody wants that. But, you know, it's almost like it feels like sometimes people are indexed the other way around, which is like you have to be small. And I think there's that tricky part, which is a lot of people have realized that, you know, really craving authenticity, right? You know, like a real person to be upfront and have those conversations. How do you feel about that? I mean, I've actually met many colleagues and mentees who also struggle with the same thing. It's like, you know, I think they kind of struggle that in the workplace as well, right? Which is, this is the project and I don't want to claim credit for the success of the project. And I'm not asking you to claim credit for the whole project success and obviously you're part of the team, but you have to lay claim that if you're the team leader, how do you do that in a way that's authentic and real? Or why do you think that challenge exists, you know? We're just taught to be very humble and respectful. And when you think about it in a deeper sense, it goes back to you know our parents in the generation of war before us. You know they see from their own personal experience moving to a different country or doing different things that if you challenge the social norms, nothing good comes out of it. And from their perspective, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. If I moved to a different country, I didn't know a language, I didn't have any money, I don't want conflict. I'm not going to say much. 
You know, even if it's unfair to me, I'm not going to say anything because I just don't want trouble. But some of those values have been passed on to us. But then again, it's a new playing field, new generation, new sets of challenges. Just because the solution to old problems have worked in the past, it doesn't mean that it's applicable now. We have to think, find ways to like play the game correctly. That's so true, right? Which is the whole thing about fitting in, trying to look like you fit in. You know, you know. I always remember when I first landed in undergrad in UC Berkeley, and I remember for the first time I ever heard a phrase like "fresh off the boat," and I never heard of that phrase. The only person I heard it from were from Asian Americans, right? And I never heard it from anyone else. And I was personally surprised, and I was like. I don't have any baggage with that word, so I don't feel the pain. But I also understand the resonance of that word. That nobody really likes it for those who ever heard that word as a kid. And now that I'm old, but yet it's Asian Americans, you know, who are giving me that phrase or labeling me it that way. I'm kind of curious about how do you feel about that. I personally don't like it. I was born in America, but I grew up in a very Asian household where we didn't speak so much English. So I think that helped me break a lot of stereotypes because as as I was going to ESL when I was younger, I met a lot of people from different countries that are really smart. They can't understand the language yet to express themselves, and yet they get picked on for that. And I never really liked that. You know, there are times in as growing up to middle school and high school where I said something like, "Stop making fun of them." Like I generally don't like that. If, if we take a step back to understand each other, that can solve a lot of those problems. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think the vast majority of people were very hospitable. There's a few people, and you know, it got me thinking a little bit. Sometimes it reminds me of the military where I was for two years, and every time you go into boot camp, instructors were really, really horrible to you, right? And you know, mm-hmm. and then after that, you pass through that fire, and then you end up on the other side of that, and you're actually the instructor. And I think ninety percent of people actually choose to not perpetuate that fire, you know, upon the new people coming in, right? But I think I'll say five to ten percent say like, "Oh, that's what I went through, so that's how you should go through it because it made me a tougher person, right?" You know that it feels like that. I think that's what happens for like sometimes like this kind of experiences. Like, I think most people and most people in my life have in in other Asian Americans have been like totally great, but it's just that five percent who kind of like choose not to. I don't know what's the word like cascade that, right? Yeah, cascade. Yeah, I think it also sends back to your internal beliefs. People are trying really hard to pass down certain experiences that they went through that are harsh. I think it also stems from like their their own insecurity, how they feel about themselves, because that oftentimes is reflected through all their actions. It's like, oh, it's because I went through this, maybe tougher, or I don't feel good about myself, so I'm gonna pick on someone else, or I got picked on today, and I'm gonna pick on this person. It's a lot of key factors, you know, that plays into it. But it comes back down to a sense of maturity too. If you're mature enough to know that these experiences, although they're hard, toughen you out, and if you really think about it from a holistic standpoint, it's not actually beneficial. It's borderline abusive and bullying. Then now the logic is behind why are you trying to do this to other people? It just comes back from I think looking at things from a more holistic standpoint. Yeah, I think that's so true, right? Which is, you know, as new immigrants, you know, being part of an immigrant nation, then the decisions being made about how do you react to that, right? Yeah, you know, choosing to react to that with reflecting that pain back onto them, to kind of like react to that with some love and acceptance, right, and acknowledgement of that insecurity. It's it's a tough balancing act. It really is. You know, people who are really getting themselves the feet planted in America, and either because they're new immigrants or as 
an Asian person looking to build a business and you know achieve financial security and freedom, what support resources would you recommend to them? Depends, right? Because there's so much resources out there. End of the day, if you don't enjoy what you do, you're not going to succeed because you don't have the patience for it. And as you're going through anything worth doing in life, if you don't enjoy it, like you're not going to do a good job because you're not willing to put in the hours to learn the foundation. You hit a couple of problems. You're like, I don't really like this thing anyway. <laughs> so screw it. I'm going to give up. So it just comes down to self-reflection, figuring out what makes you happy. What do you really enjoy? Because I think that we live in such a cool, complex economy right now that whatever you like to do can be monetized. And it's true. You can love drawing and art. There's so many ways on social media to teach people horses, to do stuff like that. If you thoroughly enjoy the stock market or real estate investing, there's so many podcasts out there that you can reach out to. But you have to come from a very beginner's mindset, where it's like you're willing to learn from the bottom up. You can't assume that you know anything. And that's the one thing, too. It's like you can't let your ego get in the way. Oh, yeah, I'm so smart. Like I know the stock market. But you really are fundamentally missing a lot of fundamental thoughts and everything. So it just collapses really fast, you know? So come from like a beginner's mindset. Even if you are an expert at your current field, like as you're moving into something new, embrace the beginner's mindset. Think back to how you first learned your first industry and just enjoy the entire process. You know, a simple Google search, you'll find a lot of things reaching out to your network, talking to people, listening to this podcast. As long as you figure out what's the one thing that you wake up to that brings you a lot of excitement, there's so many, so many possibilities to become successful. I love that phrase, beginner's mindset. I mean, that's probably the crispest way I've ever heard anyone articulate that. Could you explain more about that philosophy and phrase, beginner's mindset? Beginner's mindset is when you're starting something new and you recognize that you don't know anything and that's okay. Like, it's okay to not know. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to ask really silly questions. Best part of doing something new that you don't know. Because that's the best part of challenging yourself and growing. Don't be egotistical about it. Even if you find similarities with whatever you're learning next to your old profession, don't assume that you know it. That's going to be a huge downfall for whatever you decide to do. If you assume stuff in business, that's never a good thing. You know, you assume stuff with acquiring new skill, you're just creating fracks in your foundation, that's not good. So beginner's mindset is the best way to go and admit that you don't know anything and just enjoy it. You know, ask, ask all the questions that come from the top of your head, your heart, your mind, whatever. And I, I love it. I mean, I love learning new things. I love going to different classes and being, being like, I don't know anything. Ask questions, you know. But what you realize that if you spend the time to learn a profession or whatever interest you have really well, those habits and discipline will transfer over to anything that you decide to do. And you start reminisce some feelings of when you first learned your old expertise compared to this, that feeling of excitement where it's kind of different too, because as a expert in your field, people always come to you with questions. So, hey, how'd you do this? How'd you do that? When you find yourself asking other experts, how do you do that? How do you do this? It's so exciting, you know, to start over. And then, lo and behold, like you, you dedicate a year, two years, three years into it, like you know a good amount of stuff. And I was like, okay, what else can I learn next to continue growing mentally and physically and emotionally, spiritually? Oh, that's amazing. And I think I love the phrase asking questions because I received that feedback as an intern. And I remember my manager pulled me aside and it was like, I'll train, you know, on a, you know, management consulting job at Bain. And, 
it was like, Jeremy, you never ask any questions. Either that means that you're really smart and you get it, or you don't, right? <laughs> and you're an intern. So I think I know which one it is, you know, because as an intern, you're not supposed to know anything. And, and I realized that, yeah, you know, right. The job is tough and, you know, management consulting is all about problem solving and helping ask questions to help the client solve their question. Yeah. And so the team has to ask questions and then I'm not asking questions. And that was the outside in thing. But the inside out thing was like you said, like that cultural beliefs and norms where I, I grew up being told, do the work, don't ask questions, right? You have to spend a lot of time to unlearn those things because true success is built on top of questions and just being out there and asking weird questions and just being curious, you know, curiosity is a huge part of leadership and success because it keeps you grounded, it keeps you humble, it keeps you hungry. How do you keep up that spirit of questions, right? Like, you know, do you read a lot? Do you listen to podcasts? How do you get that question engine going and that answering process rolling? Mental health is extremely important to me. I find myself in my mid-20s having anxiety attacks because I, I just do so much and I have so much pressure under me. But at the same time, I couldn't find any ways to alleviate it until I started reading on a very serious basis every day. 45 minutes uninterrupted, deep thought into reading every morning. So I wake up around 5.30 in the morning just to read before I start my day. I find that what I thought was possible and what I thought was impossible is now possible. And that's all from reading. And using reading not as a, oh, I have to study, I have to be smart, but as an escape. You know, let my imagination go loose. And that's when... I foster a huge amount of curiosity and questions. And I feel like reading is like free mentorship in many ways. I think I hit around like 100 books per year in the last six years. That's 600 books. On top of that, I spend some time to write down my thoughts and really track them. Why am I feeling angry today? Why am I feeling unhappy today? Why am I feeling happy today? You know, understanding your root cause of everything and your why and figuring out what triggers you and what keeps you motivated, you can kind of mix and match things. When things don't go your way, you know how your body and mind operates. You know how to challenge yourself when you're slumping. What are you reading these days? I've been reading a lot of autobiographies. So recently I joined a venture fund called Outlier Fund. And some of my teammates inside the fund are like Harvard professors, MIT professor, PhDs, and they send me the books. So they're author of their own books through their own research. So I read a lot of their work. One particular book that I'm reading right now is called Edge by Laura Huang. She's a Harvard professor. She talks about how most of your business decisions is not logical. They're gut feelings. Logically and the facts can support how you feel about it in your gut. And statistically, a certain percentage of your gut feeling is always correct. And I love reading stuff like that too because it's very applicable to my life. But overall, I love reading my autobiographies. Like I, I love visualizing myself in their position, how to deal with problems. And the biggest realization I got from reading all these books and talking to these authors, they're just people like you, you and I am. We have the same amount of hours to the same day. We want to do the same things. And just understanding that it is possible, like you put in the, the time, effort, and changing the small part of your mentality and your mindset would tweak your entire life. And that's crazy for me to realize after a certain point. It's like, we can be special. Anyone can be special. It's just that small part of your mindset and your mentality has to change. Your attitude has to change. That's the only difference between anyone. Love Laura Huang. I met her when she was explaining her book, uh, Edge, at the Harvard alumni event. And I got to chat with her and definitely say hi to her for me. 
And I think it's interesting because I think the word edge, actually, it's something that we see a lot as well, which is there was a time where a lot of people undergrad everything felt like some of my Asian American friends just felt like being Asian was the, the hyphen, you know, was a liability, right? You know, mm-hmm. like not being truly American. And I think that's a key part to any immigrant story, right? For anybody who's immigrated to any country is like, they're always feeling like an outsider. And then Elora talks a lot about edge, right? Mm. I love her introduction, how she got Elon Musk's attention. <laughs> Very sharp. Yeah. How do you think about that? Like, how do you think about the age for Asian Americans mm-hmm. or the Asian people who are coming from an Asian culture? Yeah, I think the edge for us really is, I guess, enjoying the journey, really. Because I remember just starting out, ironically, I became a software engineer and everything. But growing up, I was horrible at math. <laughs> you know, I was terrible. The one thing that my parents always taught me is if you sit down and start putting the effort into actually focusing what you need to do, that becomes enjoyable. And that, I feel like that's that's our edge. You know, like we're taught discipline at a very young age, typically, whether it's voluntarily or forcefully. <laughs> we're taught discipline. And I feel like that's our edge. And discipline goes a long way. You know, when you say you do something, you do it. And when you say you want something, you accomplish it. When you say you want to change the world, you have, you have a plan to do it. So I think that's our biggest edge. Amazing. Well, you know, kind of like last question would be, if you could go back 10 years in time via time travel, mm-hmm. what advice would you give to yourself? Oh, man. If I can go back 10 years, how old would I be? I'll be 21 and 22. So I'm 30, 31, 32 right now. At that point, I had so many mental blockage. I was afraid to become too successful because I was afraid that what my friends would think of me be really lonely, that maybe it's not for me. I don't want people to know who I am. It's a lot of things. So my biggest advice is follow what feels right. Don't be afraid of the biggest stage or bigger stage in your life because you don't want your limiting thoughts to limit what you can do in the world. And life is so short. Let yourself be unique because your unique self will make the world a better place. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for not only inspiring people, but also putting together a platform for people to inspire other people in the community. Same thing with you. Your podcast sounds awesome. Thanks for reaching out and I really enjoy being on the show.